Hello and welcome to Change My Mind, the show that explores with leaders what they have changed their mind on and why. We're back with you after a short break. My name is Ali Goldsworthy and I am CEO and founder of the Depolarization Project based at Stanford in California. We're back today with Alex Chesterfield, who is a behavioral insight expert. And previously we've introduced as an elected councillor. And part of the reason for our delay was she was off fighting an election in the UK where um, she was a conservative and unfortunately she wasn't re-elected. But I'm kind of secretly a little bit pleased because it means she's going to have more time to spend working with us on this topic. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Ali. No, I'm I'm delighted to be back and um, part of changing my mind. I am over my uh, not getting re-elected. Um, it was gutting, but I think we were hit. I was hit by a, a twin tidal force of uh, people very cross and annoyed at Brexit, so it not being delivered. Um, and then also um, lots of problems around planning and not enough houses being built. So I don't know whether it's the same in the States. We have a big housing shortage. But equally, we live in a very green rural area and people basically don't want houses built anywhere near them. So, yeah, it's a shame, but onwards and upwards. And I learned a lot. Yes. Yeah. Well, Alex, we're really pleased to have you here. And um, I think Guildford's loss is, is our gain. And for American listeners, the effects of zoning are very well known in certain parts of the US. Also joining us to host today is our third wonderful co-host, Laura Osborne, who is Communications and Campaigns Director at London First. So she's helps be the, the voice of London's business. Hi, Laura. Hi, Ali. How are you doing? We're doing we're doing great. Have you uh, was the election period quiet for you? Quiet time with Brexit? It's been a really interesting time and quite a strange time I think to be the voice of business because a lot of things have almost happened over the last few months and not happened and now we're in a long extension before we find out what happens at the end of October you know which could still be no deal or could still be a different deal and we'll have a different prime minister and we could have a different government it's been a fairly um, feisty time but at the same time there's still a lot of waiting so yeah interesting times. Do you feel like you're in one unrelenting groundhog day? A little bit. (laughs) It does (laughs) definitely have those moments. We were saying that the other day. We were like, oh, we've done no deal before. Let's let's, let's go back to see what we did last time. (laughs) Yeah, let's go round again as quite a few people have written songs. absolutely. Um, We should move on to introducing our guest today who tells us about how flattery helps change people's minds. And we try it out on him to see if we can get him to change his mind. Before that, though, a brief word from our sponsors. This episode of Change My Mind is brought to you by Stanford University's MSX program. The MSX program offers experienced leaders a one-year full-time accelerated master's degree at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Students, known as Sloan Fellows, come from all over the world. It's rigorous, immersive, inspiring, and transforms careers. I should know because a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to be one of them. And it's where the idea for the Depolarization Project and this podcast were born. For more information, visit gsb.stanford.edu slash msx. We've already given you as listeners a hint of the tone and humor that might be coming through in this podcast, but we've not told you about who our guest is. That guest is Jeffrey Pfeffer. Jeff is the Thomas D.D. Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. 
He's the author or co-author of over 15 books, including Power, Why Some People Have It and Others Don't, Leadership BS, and most recently, the internationally acclaimed Dying for a Paycheck. Jeff has taught at Stanford since 1979. He's been a visiting professor at Harvard, Singapore Management University, London Business School, and for the past 14 years at ISE in Barcelona. Jeff has served on a host of boards, from those listed on NASDAQ to leading nonprofits, and is widely regarded as one of the world's foremost experts on management. Welcome to the show, Jeff. It's lovely to have you here. I'd love to begin by asking you about Dying for a Paycheck, your latest book, um, which talks about workplace health. What's the reaction been to it? The reaction has been mostly, frankly, to ignore it. I think many people see the problem. I think almost no one wants to own the problem because they don't see it as being solvable, which is wrong. I think it is quite solvable. Um, But I think, um, you know, in today's world, Many organizations, many even governments, I think, are very concerned with GDP. I think, you know, companies are concerned with profits and with profitability and with productivity and not too many uh, people or governments or anybody else seems to be that concerned with human well-being. And that's something that I hope will change over time, that we ought to take the well-being of people as seriously as we take the well-being of polar bears and We ought to understand as we worry about our carbon footprints on the world that human beings are a carbon life form. Uh, But at the moment, I would say um, it it has gotten a lot of publicity, a lot. I've done a lot of interviews around the world, uh, but I don't see many, I don't see much change yet. And what do you think makes people so hesitant to embrace that change or to be even open-minded to it? Um, I don't think they think they need to do anything yet. So if you think about um, the physical environment, um, the 50, 60 years ago, companies put stuff into the air, the water, and the ground. And and what caused them to change was not that they figured out it was economically wasteful, though it was, uh, that it was harmful, though it was. Um, But what caused them to change is some combination of legislation, litigation, and regulation. And with respect to the human environment, uh, none of this has yet happened. So unless there is some litigation, regulation, legislation, I don't think much is frankly going to change. Regardless of how many people die, or, and regardless, frankly, of the productivity effects on companies, and the productivity effects are enormous. I mean, you know, there's estimates that suggest that the cost in the U.S. of ill health is about 150 or $180 billion. We know from a bunch of research that the indirect costs of lost days, people being at work but not fully engaged, called presenteeism, uh, turnover, is many times that. So the cost to the U.S. economy is probably somewhere between $1 trillion and $1.5 trillion a year. People see this as a cost of doing business. So you said there at the outset that no one's actually doing what they should be doing. But for those listeners who haven't read your book yet, who should take action and what should they be doing? Well, a company should take action um, to build healthier workplaces. And you can do that simply by giving people more discretion on the job, give them more you know, opportunities to uh, figure out what they need to do and when they need to do it. Uh, you need to give people more so- social support at work. Um, you certainly need to give people, as, a, as an employer, more ability to balance 
work responsibilities with their other responsibilities, such as family, elder care, child care, etc. And you need to curtail work hours so that people are not working all the time, because we know, including from articles published in The Economist magazine, that the higher the work hours, the lower the level actually of productivity. So that's what employers should do. Employees should not go to work for companies that basically where they face um, toxic work conditions. Um, the, the people who I interviewed for dying for a paycheck mostly knew that they were unhealthy in, in unhealthy workplaces. But they would say, well, you know, I'll do it until the product launches or I'll do it until I make some money or I'll do it for a while. And so they would stay um, even when they were uh, suffering um, both psychologically and physically. So employees need to evaluate jobs, not just in terms of salary and career opportunities, but also in terms of whether or not they are any workplace that permits them to both psychologically and physically thrive. Has this problem got worse in your view? Yes, in a word, absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, what, what are the causes of, of this? It's worse than well, well, the gig economy has made things, of course, less. Um, there's less job security. We know from lots of research that layoffs and other forms of job insecurity, such as scheduling insecurity, cause people uh, stress and difficulties. Mm. So I, I think that's one thing that's gotten worse. And more uncertainty. Uh, work, out, work hours have, got, have gotten longer in many countries around the world. Um, I think I just saw something just the other day in an academic paper which cited some UK study which said that 50% of workers in this sample uh, were working unpaid overtime. Uh, so, you know, the word there's been work intensification. So that's made it worse. Jeff, I could spend a long time talking to you about dying for a paycheck, but I'm conscious that this is also going to be listened to by some prospective students um, at Stanford. And I'd love to ask you a little bit about the course that I did with you, uh, Pass to Power, which is sort of one of the seminal courses really here at Stanford. Um, where you get taught to flatter people as well and tell them that their courses are seminal. Um, so Jeff is nodding sagely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hopefully think you've taken his, his advice on board. But one of my very favourite case studies that you discuss in that course is um, about Tina Brown, um, who was the editor of Talk Magazine, which launched here. She previously had written a number of books on the, the British royal family. And Talk Magazine was a bit of a flop, to put it mildly. People sank a lot of money in and it never really got anything like the circulation for it to become profitable. But what really intrigued me was thinking back and reading back over those, those notes was that she just kept almost bulldozing on and saying it was a success, it was a success, rather than admitting that anything had gone wrong or maybe even that she had changed her mind about anything as a consequence. And I, I really wanted to unpick with you why you think she might have behaved in that way and what the cost to her might have been of admitting that something had gone wrong, even though it was very obvious to any, any observer that it had. Well, you know, as you tell that story, I'm reminded of our current president, who also doesn't admit that anything has ever gone wrong and everything is always fine at the border and in the economy and everything else. And the fact that we've had turnover in the administration, who cares? We just give us more opportunity to hire more great people who, of course, aren't so great after they're there for a while and then they get fired. Um, the, I think the lesson, the primary lesson of the Tina Brown case is that every human being who works in an organization has multiple dimensions along which their performance could be evaluated. So as a magazine editor, I can evaluate you on, does the magazine make money? Uh, do you have circulation? Do you have ad revenues? Are you getting buzz? 
et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and I think one of the things that smart employees ought to do is they ought to emphasize to their bosses and in their conversation on a daily basis, those dimensions of their performance on which they do the best. And we all, you know, because performance is multidimensional, we're always trying to accomplish a variety of different things along a variety of different dimensions. And part of what makes people successful is to emphasize those things on which they do well. Um, and you see this, by the way, and this is not just Tina Brown. If you look at, and I've added now a reading on this individual, if you look at Arianna Huffington and the Huffington Post, it's very much the same story. I mean, Huffington Post, I think also, if, if they ever were profitable, they did not make a very much money. But, you know, they were, they, they had lots of, um, lots of circulation and she was able to sell, sell the company for $315 million. And so again, this is presented as a big success. Yeah, or you could add BuzzFeed to that list as well at the minute for another contemporary yes. example. But even within that, these people do need to hit a financial bottom line. There's like a hygiene factor that they need to hit, which is, you know, helping things tick over. And and I'm I'm really astonished always when I look back at these examples that people don't say, well, actually, yeah, this bit didn't work very well and maybe I'd have changed it slightly and only ever focus on the bits that they've done well on. Uh, because I think... You know, I think we see things uh, uh, by the narrative that we use to describe them. And one of the, and so therefore it becomes, I think, the responsibility of people to tell a narrative. And I think the narrative you want to tell about yourself is fundamentally a, a positive one. So do you think people who adopt a slightly more nuanced narrative about themselves, where they acknowledge their successes, but also their failures, end up being perceived as less successful than those who just tell a pure success story? Um, probably. I think, you know, and they're, they're probably perceived not only as less successful, but as less confident. And mm. we know that people respond positively to confidence. Um, it's one of the gender differences that often apparently distinguishes between men and women. Um, of it's, I think, you know, I think we, we respond well to confidence. Confidence is contagious. So I think you want to, I think you want to display always that you know what you're doing and that everything is working out. So um, would you go, would you extend that to, um, I guess, leaders, leaders who do change their minds publicly uh, and therefore you know, someone's often accused of flip-flopping or being weak? So would you, I guess, would you say or would you agree that it's, it can be costly for leaders to, to change their minds, at least in public? Well, uh, the leaders need to change their minds if what they're doing doesn't work. But you often, if you often say people will, will change their minds without apparently changing their minds because they present it as just a continuation of what we've been doing. Mm. We're going down the same successful path, only it's a different path, but we're not going to talk about that. Mm. Mm. Is anyone that stands out to you as having changed their mind particularly successfully? Who has changed their mind successfully? Um, so I think in, in, in people's individual, not in, in the non-public sphere, I think people change their minds all the time. Uh, doctors, I think good doctors, um, come up with a hypothesis about what the diagnosis is. As they get more information, they are likely to change their minds. Certainly another person who we studied in the past, the power class, Laura Esserman, you know, she will tell you as a breast cancer surgeon that everything she learned in medical school 30 years ago about treating breast cancer is wrong. And she, of course, has changed 
her treatment and how she approaches diagnosis and, and all as you gain more information. So certainly in the sciences, you see lots of examples of people changing their minds about, you know, about nutrition, about, uh, about treatments for various diseases. As science advances, you see people actually changing their minds, I think, quite frequently in the sciences. I think you see less mind-changing in the public because once you're in public, you're publicly committed to the position and it's harder for you to change your mind. I think once you are uh, in, in a public role, it is harder for you to change your mind because people value consistency rather than flexibility, believe it or not. Um, so I think you see less mind changing among politicians and CEOs than you do among people in less public roles and certainly among scientists. I mean, the whole basis of science, not just physical science or medical science or social, but all sciences, is skepticism and a willingness to learn from the data. Though I'm, I guess I'm very struck by Philip Teplock's work in this space about, which I guess you must be very familiar with, about experts not always being proven to take better decisions than people who are non-experts. So I just, I want to really agree with you, but I, I always have his research chiming in the back of my head thinking, is it as, am I right? Are you right about... If, am I right that taking a scientific-based approach, which is open to scrutiny and that helps develop my own expertise, that I like to think that will make me make better judgments? But what if it doesn't? And Tetlock's work sort of indicates that's the case. Well, you know, Tetlock's work, I, that's not exactly how I would read it. Um, you know, I think, uh, but, but in any event, I mean, we all do the best we can. And we're talking about relative mind-changing. So yes, um, scientists also, I think, get committed to their positions and are reluctant to change their minds, but they're much less stubborn than, um, than, than politicians or maybe even than CEOs. And so is that because it essentially comes down to the objectives you evaluate yourself by? And if these are not mainly about getting power or attaining a leadership position, you're freer to flex your approach? Um, I think that's probably right. I mean, you know, uh, scientists, of course, are also engaged in competition. Uh, but I, but I think it's the ethos in in which they are raised, and an ethos that says, "Pay attention to the data." I mean, my colleague Bob Sutton and I wrote a book on evidence based management now thirteen years ago because we were hoping that uh, ma management would pay more attention to the evidence. I'm sorry to say that in many cases it does not. And it's interesting to me that Laura has. Uh, brought up there, I suppose, almost people taking strong positions or peacocking or however you want to to frame it. And again, we, we covered um, when we were in class that that can be quite an effective way to stand out and get a leadership role, you know, in many circumstances. But in this context, sort of we're all wondering, is it driving polarization? So is it driving people to take some more extreme positions as they try and outdo each other? And I, I just wondered sort of if you had any reflections on that and almost if there was a business or political case for taking a very strong position. Oh, there is absolutely a very uh, business case for uh, taking a very strong position. So yesterday, I began the process of writing a case on a fellow named Jason Calacanis, um, who is, um, came from a very poor family in Brooklyn and today is extremely wealthy. And uh, CNBC has asked him uh, to be a contributor which I think he's probably not going to do. Uh, the New York Times has asked him 
to become a regular contributor to the New York Times editorial page, which I'm not sure he's going to do. But when Jason and I talked about what made Jason um, so interesting to CNBC and, uh, and to the New York Times, it's because he takes not only strong positions, but he is willing to do something that I think most people in today's world are not willing to do, which is to tell the truth. What does At it, least as he sees it. Can you tell us a bit more about his truth as he sees it or what is it, it is he says just for our listeners who might not be familiar with his work? Well, nobody would be. I'm not sure you could. He has a blog, which is quite well uh, known. It's called, he has a company called Launch. And uh, I, don't, uh, I, th- I think the, the, the blog, which goes all over the world, is called This Week in Startups because um, he really focuses on entrepreneurship. And, uh, you know, I mean, his... So the, the so he showed me yesterday when I was at his house, which is probably about the size of the Stanford GSB. But in any event, <laughs> when when I was at his house, he showed he showed me or read to me an editorial that he was thinking of submitting to the New York Times, which is an editorial about um, about the Silicon Valley taking money from Saudi Arabia. I don't know if your listeners would necessarily know this, uh, but um, SoftBank. Uh, has, has, has taken a lot of money uh, from so the Saudi government and has then invested in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley itself has taken a lot of money uh, through the Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund. And Jason's position is that we should not. And he's quite strong about this and uses quite strong language to talk about you know, uh, the killing of journalists and the imprisonment of women and reformers and journalists, etc., so I would say that's taking a strong position. And one of the things that he and I talked about was he said, you know, he said, do you think this will, uh, this will have bad effects on my business? And I don't think it will for a variety of reasons. But in any event, so he, he takes strong positions on this. Jason is very famous, very famous for at the very moment, and you can probably find this on Google more easily than I can, at the very moment that Travis Kalanick of Uber was under huge attack for being, you know, a sexist and a all kind of jerk and all kinds of other things, uh, Jason came out with a statement that said there are relatively few people who take a business and build it from one to fifty. There are even fewer who build it from fifty to five hundred. There are even fewer that build it from fifty to five thousand. And to get to fifty thousand, there's almost nobody. And therefore, he didn't think people properly appreciated um, Travis Kalanick. By the way, Jason. One of the reasons why he lives in this enormous house is that he was one of the early investors in Uber. Him, him and Lance Armstrong, who's also not very good at admitting he was wrong <laughs> on anything. Um, Alex, Laura, do you want to come in at all? Yeah, I was just going to jump in and actually ask, um, so picking up your point, Jeffrey, on, on telling the truth, is this the same as being authentic, um, which is often you know, seen as a desirable characteristic? And if it is the same as being authentic, why aren't more people doing it or more lead, business leaders doing it? Well, you know, I'm not a big believer in being authentic. I think, you know, my, one of my favorite columns that Adam Grant ever wrote mm. in the New York Times is this column, which is entitled, Unless You're Oprah, Be, your, be <laughs> Yourself is Bad Advice. Ah, <laughs> oh, that, that, that's, a, that's a, okay. That's a great learn, a myth, myth busting. That is a, and, and, and his point is, is that when he began and, uh, you know, Adam is now very famous for many things. Yeah. Uh, he began, when he began his career as a speaker, uh, you know, uh, he was very nervous 
And so he's preparing to give a talk and he's extremely nervous. And, um, and so he asked one of his colleagues, you know, for advice, what should I do? And the advice was Jason, no, pardon me, not Jason, Adam, be yourself. And Adam said, worst advice, because of course, he's, he's a nervous wreck. Being himself is the last thing that you want to be if you want to go out and give a persuasive talk. So, uh, so I think being true to yourself is crummy advice. Uh, I think much better advice is to be authentically true to what the people around you need from you, which may not be what you're feeling. You may feel uncertain and unconfident, but the people around you on your team may need to feel that you know what you're doing and have confidence. You may feel, you know, you may feel tired and the people around you may need energy. You may feel depressed because some close personal member of your family has done something to profoundly disappoint you. But the people around you need your energy and your engagement, regardless of how you may be feeling at that moment. I think it's fair to say, as you started asking that question, Alex, I could see Jeff like take on a persona that I saw in class in front of a whole room. Oh, right. Okay. Like a flavor of what goes on. Uh, Well, that's, that's, I mean, I've been giving that advice loads. Be, you know, be authentic. Um, So I will now spread the word. It's a load of BS. Yeah. It, it is indeed, which um, uh, does link to one of Jeff's books, Leadership BS, which I highly recommend everybody read. Now, Jeff, there is a question that we ask everybody that comes on the show, which is we ask them to talk about a time that they've changed their mind on an issue and why. And I know that you thought about a topic and I'd love to let you sure. loose on it. So years ago, towards really towards the beginning of my career, um, I and a colleague uh, wrote a paper about why leaders didn't matter. And there's a lot of logic for why leaders might not matter, if you think about it. Number one, by the time you reach a leadership position, you have been screened and selected as you've gone through these promotion uh, hurdles. And so by the time you get to the top, one reason why leaders may not matter is they've been homogenized through the selection process. A second reason why leaders may not matter is that... um, A lot of organizational performance is not because of what the leader does. It's because you're in the right industry or you're in the right uh, economic circumstances. I mean, if you were a leader of a bank in 2008, you're going to have trouble, I don't, regardless of your skills. And by the same token, um, you know, if you're running Florida Power and Light um, and the summer is hot, you're going to do well because you're going to sell a lot of electricity, even though uh, this has nothing to do with your individual performance. So, so we be, I began with this idea and actually wrote a paper called The Ambiguity of Leadership, in which I talk about how leadership had been overemphasized, etc. And over time, I have changed my mind about that. And in particular, I am not sure leaders can make organizations a lot better, but I'm 100% sure that leaders can make organizations a lot worse. And one of the ways in which they can make organizations worse is by building workplaces that drive talent out the door because, because the place is so filled with workplace bullying and abuse or gender and race discrimination or unhealthy work practices so that so that good people do not want to stay. And with turnover, um, organizations, I think, uh, can go um, can obviously go way down. And so leaders can destroy a lot of value. Whether or not they can create a lot of value 
is still, I think, somewhat open. But there's no question you see leaders come in all the time and take countries and companies and other other kinds of organizations, such as nonprofits or sports teams, down the drain. That's a that's a big that's a big change. Was there something um, in particular that, that triggered that? Was it a slow a slow change over time? It was, I think, just observations of what I saw going on in organizations and seeing and seeing the damage that people did relatively quickly. So, to take a simple example, and I think Allison saw this um, when she was in the class. So, George Zimmer uh, of the Men's Warehouse built this amazingly fabulous retailer of tailored men's clothing. And as he said, it took me 40 years to build a culture and it took the new leader, the new CEO, six months to destroy it. Mm. I mean, and you've all seen, I think your listeners will have seen uh, organizations which have built, you know, very strong cultures, customer-centric, employee-centric, high-performing cultures. And when a bad leader comes in, how quickly that can be destroyed. How many people run for the door? How quickly you can destroy customer loyalty? And that and that's interesting because I guess in 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 social psych psychology, you know, kind of uh, one hundred and one, you're taught that context is is king and and context really affects the individuals. But I guess what we're saying here is that leaders have have the potential, I guess, because they have so much uh, power to affect change in all parts of the organisation that they can almost drive the context of that particular particular organization as, as, right. in, as in they're less I guess less immune or more immune to the context of, of, of the culture and I'm just going to be here with a slightly awkward question you have become more of a leader in your own field in this time and Jeff is shaking his head that is a massive lie he's out that like should you end up at Stanford or have the opportunity to to hear him speak then then show up but like to me you're a leader um in your field and as I wonder if as you have become more of a leader yourself? Has that dovetailed with your view that leaders can have more control and influence? No, not really, because 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 with all due respect, Alison, I don't think of myself as a leader. Um, <laughs> and I don't think of myself as a person who's having very much power either. In the words of my colleague, the late James March, who really is quite famous, um, that you can have autonomy or you can have power, but you cannot have both. Um, I think when, you, when you're in positions of power, you give up a lot of freedom you're under a lot of public scrutiny. You have to do what the job requires of you. You have a lot of responsibilities and expectations. Uh, fortunately, I have a job with no, uh, no power, but tons of autonomy. I can do what I want, when I want, um, and teach what I want, etc. So I don't actually think of myself as a person with power in a position of leadership. Nobody's following me. Do you find in your work that there's a bit of tension between people who want to become leaders and the level of autonomy they feel that they need? And sometimes do you, do you see a correlation with those negative leaders who just want to do whatever they want to do versus those who are willing to better integrate and become part of an organisation? Well, I haven't actually really looked at that, but my sense is that, you know, that all anybody in a formal position of great power has lost a fair amount of autonomy and um, and if they think they can get it back, they can't. Um, and maybe and maybe that's an, that's an interesting observation. Maybe one of the problems with you know Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison or many of these other people is that they have some sense never grown up and they've never really <laughs> they've never really wanted to be the adults that they, that they're supposed to be and be re- and be responsible for and to other people. If you think about it, you know if you're running a large organization. Or for that matter, even a small one, but certainly in a large organization, 
you know, it's one of the things about dying for a paycheck. One of the things I say in that book is that every day when employees come to work, they have entrusted their psychological and physical well-being to the organization for which they work and for the leaders and their supervisors uh, for whom they are, you know, to whom they report. And, and then, so then the question becomes, do those leaders, do those CEOs accept that responsibility? Are they good stewards of the lives that have been entrusted to them or are they not? Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. Are they the right people to trust and to give that power to? Or, or are they the, so the same attributes that make you a good person, those that make you a good leader? No, it's probably the opposite. I mean, we love, I mean, you know, we love, we, we select, and there's a lot of systematic research on this. We tend to select into leadership roles narcissists. We tend to select into, into, into leadership roles um, people who are skilled at, at strategic misrepresentation. That's the word I will use. Um, we tend to select in the leadership roles. There's actually an article in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology which talks about uh, the psycho, uh, you know, basically our CEOs, psychopaths. And the answer is in many cases, yes. Because if you think about it, one of the, so you, you've, you've hit on an interesting dilemma, which I don't think we're going to resolve today or maybe ever. But one of the interesting, but maybe, what, but one of the interesting dilemmas is one of the things that I think makes individuals successful in any domain of life, including sports or anything else, is your willingness to basically do whatever it takes to succeed. And if you think about the definition of psycho psychopathy, it is not caring what anybody else thinks about you, living in your own world. So to the extent you don't care what about anybody else thinks about you to the extent that you're living in your own world, you will do whatever it takes to succeed. And, and that will more likely than not have uh, in, increased your chances of being successful. Does that so, help? If you think about, so if you think about athletes, you know, the best athletes are the ones who basically are willing to play through pain, to practice unreasonable hours, to do all the things that make them great athletes. I'm not sure that makes them normal, balanced human beings. I was going to ask, does that hold for long-term success? So I can see how that might be in the, in the short term, but... Well, the interesting thing is everybody has this idea mm. that organizations are homeostatic and in the end, truth comes out. But actually, most organizational processes amplify variance rather than correct it. So once you're on a positive trajectory, you are subject to confirmation bias. Everybody will interpret everything you've done in a positive light. You know, so and and people will want to be associated with your success and you will be able to hire better people and more people will want to invest in you and et cetera, et cetera. So it's a flywheel effect. Which is, is totally true. And I'd agree with it. I just wanted to jump back slightly to where we were talking about psychopaths, which is I'm interested from from your point of view. Is there ever an effective way to call out leaders who are behaving in a particularly psychopathic or unhealthy fashion. And have you seen that happen? So if you wanted to call out, you know, I, I don't know, maybe a, a president who you didn't agree with or a prime minister who was making a particularly bad job of negotiating leaving the EU, how would you think that that was an effective way? Or what, is there an effective way to do so? Well, I think the best effect, the most effective way, which may sound counterintuitive, uh, to get someone to change 
their mind and to call them out is to, number one, flatter them mercilessly. Uh, you never want to tell anybody that they're wrong because no one wants to believe that they're wrong. And number two, you want to convince them that the policy that you want them to give up is not really their policy at all. That, that it really does, that they decided it under duress or they did it because they had to, uh, to. But to the extent people are identified with and associated with a particular decision or set of behaviors, they will never change. So the only way to get them to change is to say, well, I understand why you did that, Allison. You did that because you really had no choice. You did that because of the pressures of this, that, or the other thing. But really, deep in your heart, you know the right thing to do, which is this other thing. And of course, you're so smart that you will immediately do that. <laughs> That's beautifully put. And I suppose we can look forward to a few senior political advisors trying to use those lines. Um, a couple of them will have done already and, and they listen to this. <laughs> I'm wondering why their bosses are not quite picking it up <laughs> to go from there. Um, Alex and Laura, do you have any final questions? I've got two I, I would love to ask Jeff. Yeah, jump it. Yeah. So I have two, which is one, um, you teach quite a few classes and PhD students over, the, over here and, and quite a few over the years. Are there any times where a student has changed your mind particularly effectively, and what did they do? Has a student changed my mind? Um, I'm sure there are, but I can't think of any offhand. <laughs> Which might speak something to how, how effectively students might or might not have flattered you over the years as well. <laughs> it could be. Um, and I guess in the, and the very final question is, we ask every guest on the show to nominate someone else who they would like us to go and ask about a time that they changed their mind and why. And we wondered if you would like to nominate anybody. They can be dead or alive, though we... we as we like to approach them, at least one being alive would be helpful with that. I, w I would like you to find the time that Donald Trump has changed his mind. Oh, I think there's quite a lot of times that you can find times when Donald Trump has changed his mind. It's just whether he's admitted that he's changed ah, his mind is a, is, a separate, right. is a separate thing or why he's done it. So you could look at, and this is very common with a lot of leaders, you know, like, for example, the, the practicalities of a policy when it comes into play. So rescinding green cards from people or saying that you're going to stop all migration from the, the EU or, or limit migration when it's coming in, you know, and then people find in practice that they just can't do it. Um, and so they never completely say that they've changed their mind um, and to go, go on there and, and do that. But we will, we may extend an invitation to the president. Um, but I'm, you should certainly extend an invitation to Elon Musk. Yes, I think he, <laughs> he and Travis Kalanick, actually, um, and go from there, because I would love to know how um, Travis's view on his own leadership might or might not have yeah. changed with a little bit of time to reflect. Yeah. The irony is, is that Travis, if Travis had actually, you know, put in the principles, the, the stuff that I teach in my class on the path to power, um, he would still be in his job. He, he, he left voluntarily. You understand they could never have forced him out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and there were particular circumstances in his own life, actually outside work. That, yeah, from what from what there is reported, yeah. um, and here's that. Alex and Laura, just any final questions from you? Um, maybe what, what would you most like to what would you most like to change other people's minds on? I would. I think what I would most like to change other people's minds on is is to pay more attention to the data and the evidence. I think we are in trouble on issues such as climate change, on issues such as migration and immigration. I mean, one of the interesting things about Western Europe is that Western, every country in Western Europe, actually every country in the developed world, uh, but certainly every country in Western Europe has a below replacement level birth rate, which means that by definition, and since we know that GDP is a function of two things, the size of the population and the productivity per person, 
This is a mathematical thing. So that it, without immigration, Western Europe eventually will not exist uh, because of a below replacement level birth rate. So the climate change, immigration, um, and just tons of domains in life, in both social policy and organizational mm. policy, there's a reluctance to pay attention to the data and the evidence. So if I could change people's minds about one thing, it would be to pay more attention to the facts. What a wonderful message to end on. I'm totally with you. Yes, that is a great, great message. Um, ladies, let's draw it to a close there. Thank you, Jeff. Thank very you much. so much, Thank Jeff. Uh, well, that brings to an end this section um, of the show. And Laura and I are now going to just attempt to digest that, those many, many pearls of wisdom that Jeff left us with. Laura or Alex, was there anything that particularly struck you about what Jeff said? Mm. So I think that the authenticity point really stuck out for me. Um so we have this, I think since, probably like since the mid 2000s, there's been a lot of focus in the leadership literature on the importance of leaders being authentic to get people to uh, follow them and, and to influence and, and to succeed in the workplace. So Jeff really shone, I guess, well, trashed that, trashed that whole concept, <laughs> um, which is, yeah, which was, which was quite, I guess, quite surprising for me. But thinking about, thinking about it, I guess more closely, it does make sense. So for example, there is that tension at work between being open and yourself and admitting vulnerabilities, admitting mistakes, which can help you be more approachable and feel closer to your team. But then equally, I guess this is what Jeff was saying, is that actually that can come across as a as a weakness and actually you start to then lose your authority. So almost like the flip, you know, it's a double-edged sword, it's a flip side. But yeah, super interesting. What did, what, what did you take from that? I thought there's something really interesting there as well, to your point, Alex, about who, who your audience is for those different parts of your leadership personality in a way. In the sense, I completely agree. I think it is emphasised a lot, you know, particularly in, in coaching and other approaches to enhancing leadership, I think, to show people more of your um, whole self, if you like. But perhaps, you know, that doesn't extend to your boss or that doesn't extend to your CEO, you know, thinking about what Jeff was saying about, you know, you need to talk about your strengths um, and really bring out the best of what you do. And I can see how, you know, sometimes that's absolutely true in terms of having the right impact on the executive or, or the board. But I can also see that, you know, if you were doing that all the time with your close team, you know, they might start to think you you were a bit of a, a bit of a pain. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, it, it, it sort of and raised some questions yeah. for me. I suppose a bit, and, and we'll link to the Adam Grant piece that he talks about where, I mean, where often Jeff describes it is particularly if you're anxious or nervous about something. So say Adam Grant talks about being nervous about speaking in public, you know, and that if you tell everybody you're nervous about speaking in public, then it almost can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and you yourself become nervous. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you set your own expectations that you're going to own this and you're going to do really well, then people do come across quite differently. Hence the tag line, unless you are Oprah or as talented as Oprah, then be your, be yourself is really bad advice. Um, and, and I do, you know, and, and so I do think there is some truth in this, a bit of fake it to you make it, but to, to bring this, I guess, a bit back to politics or to some bits of business, clearly when you're making yourself vulnerable, you also open up flanks for people to attack you on. 
um, and to talk about things. And I'm not sure, particularly in some of the current political environments, that when people do open up, that there's really much reward or in fact disincentive mm. for people taking advantage of that. You know, it's maybe common decency, but are people so aligned to their own tribes now that that doesn't really pay off? Um, and does that mean that we are more likely to reward people who behave really quite badly and that fuels a polarization cycle? Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting, Ali, and it, it sort of opened up a bit of a a bit of a split thought for me in the sense that I, I think that's right. I think there is the risk that that we end up doing that, and we do end up um, championing almost people who have some quite sort of questionable views. But also the other side of that is I feel like if those are the leaders that rise to the top, then we're really blocking off the other area that Jeff talked about being really important for everyone, which is, you know, a healthier environment and healthier workplaces and, you know, more social support and all of those things. And I was thinking, you know, that's, it's very hard to find the space for that, you know, in the workplace or or indeed in a political system, you know, thinking about the research that's that's come out recently on, on in the UK on MPs mental health, for example, you know, very, very hard for us to want both of these things at the same time, because clearly that they, they sort of sit a little bit in, in tension with each other. Yeah, how compatible are they? And I guess it, it, I think that that's a really good point, because it also chimes with um, all the evidence on psychological safety and open team culture, so being able to take a risk and admit some admit mistakes, show vulnerability, suggest ideas, raise challenges. Um, you know how how yeah how does that how does that chime with also then having to to sell yourself to push your strengths to uh position yourself in a particular way to succeed i'm not sure those yeah i'm not sure those two things you, you i'm not sure they, they do marry no well, i don't think they do marry at all and i think part of the problem is that you know you try people try and reconcile them a bit but at the minute the attraction is unfortunately far too much in, in one direction and for people to just side with whoever is in their own group you know there's a lot of very obvious in group out group dynamics that we talked about with steve martin that continue to to persist um well yeah i mean we like people much more uh sorry we like we tend to like people who are much more like us yeah yeah and also who compliment us yeah 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 or who make us feel better and who flatter us because i suppose if you like people in your own mold then you're in effect flattering yourself yeah what do you think it says that there's three white blonde women doing this podcast (laughs) (laughs) we all know each other i I, i'm not sure what that says about us but um uh, let's not dwell on it because it's a little bit uncomfortable um but one other thing that i was i was really struck by which follows on from this was jeff's resolute belief that there was a business case for polarization. And, you know, I went away, I agree with him actually. Um, and I think, I suspect we all three might, but I thought it was worth picking out some contemporary examples. So last month, the NRA, the National Rifle Association in the US, decided to sever links with NRA TV because they had taken very extreme views and and really, really quite extreme views that I would probably class as potentially racist, um, where, for example, when Thomas the Tank Engine, the beloved children's TV show, had introduced a Kenyan character, they'd placed clan hoods on top of the, the Thomas the Tank Engine characters, which I just think is is not just inappropriate. It, 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 
it goes so far beyond that in in how to respond and engage with things. And there was an uproar in response to the NRA that has caused them to sever, sever links with the, the company that's behind it that they've been working with for 30 years. But on the other hand, Nike Sales, when um, they did a very famous advert, we'll link to it as well in case listeners haven't heard it, with Kaepernick uh, over Labor Day, which is a bank holiday weekend here in the States, their sales went up by 31%. So it had me thinking, actually, does polarization have a business case when it's against the government in power? And I didn't know whether you guys had any reflections on that from your side of the pond as well. Yeah, I, I suppose thinking about that, Ali, it reminded me a little bit about, you know, not not just um, polarization against the government, but but in business where you have a challenger brand that's trying to mark out its territory and it can get very personal about the incumbent um, in a sector, you know, maybe in banking or in telecoms or energy in particular. I was thinking we're actually taking a really strong position on something um, that they know someone else will find very hard to counter or a very personal position. You're even singling out the, the CEO of the bigger brand for, yeah. for criticism for various things, you know, can stand to make them quite successful. You know, it can give them press coverage. It gives them alliances with unexpected people because they adopt the causes of other um, issue groups. And, you know, it, it's quite a, a sort of deliberate, I think, well-established way to mark your territory. But obviously, notably and interestingly, as those groups expand and those businesses start to do well, they tend to drift back towards the middle ground. Um, So I wonder if there's something about, you know, a point in your... um, In your evolution cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Facebook's the most obvious example of that or Uber or Airbnb and how they are engaging with regulators now as a a consequence where you can see it in fintech all across um, Europe. But it is, it's a very well-trodden political path, which Alex may have some bruises from in the last few months and and in a previous life. Certainly I used to occasionally indulge in a bit of this as well, which is you'd prod and prod and prod at opponents until they decided that you, until you got a reaction, right? And because then that defined you as their main opponent in people's heads. And once they started criticizing you, you were elevated to their level. And that's part of the psychology behind, behind what goes on. Alex, I don't know if that happened to you at all. Um, I think less so at a local level, where you know there's a lot of focus on like delivering core services. I think there's less room for differentiation. Um, but I can see that at a national level, where it's you want to create a clear dividing line between you and your opponent. So yeah, I, I yeah I get that. Yeah, and less we so can local, but... we can certainly see it both in the primary elections here. Um, that are going on in the Democratic Party at the minute, and actually there's there's a leadership election to be prime minister in the UK, um, and both people starting to prod and needle in a way where they're meant to be friends with each other because they're in the same party. It's uh, uh, I, I'm sure there's some studies. I'll see if I can dig them out and put them in the links. Um, but we should talk about also what Jeff told us he changed his mind on, which mm. was... Uh, leaders having thought that they didn't have any influence at all. He now thinks that they can just do bad things, which is very reassuring for people listening to this podcast, hoping to develop their leadership skills. <laughs> Key message, don't do bad things. Yeah. 
Um, well, and there's certainly, and I, it might even be Jeff's work actually that shows that once you get to a very senior level, so like Standard Poor's 500 or FTSE 100 or um, whatever your big stock market is, and you're at that level, that how, whatever the financial performance of the company, the odds are that your next paycheck will still be higher and be more than that. So there's no, you, you there's just no keep- sanctions for, for poor for poor behavior then for misbehavior. And actually, there's an incentive for companies to get rid of you and provide you with a great reference because they don't want you hanging around. Yeah. So in fact, there's an incentive to to shift you on, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, and to shift you on with a golden goodbye. And I, I, I do wonder, and I should, I don't know if you two have seen any, but maybe I should dig in and try and find some research on whether that happens just to people at more well end paid paid the spectrum and less you know people get less good payoffs if they are less educated that would seem very intuitive but i wonder if that builds into resentment that there is no sanction for actually doing a pretty bad job i think you're right because in the end by the time as you say you've got to that what you might call that extreme level of seniority, you're operating in quite a small pool of people who have the proven experience of doing it. And I I think, you know, if you're an executive headhunter or whoever, you know, even even if you've not done very well in one of those organisations, I think you're right, Ali, you probably, those people probably still able to talk about themselves and their capabilities, go back to Jeff's point, in such a way that projects sufficient confidence that people will just let them do it again, you know, even if it really wasn't very successful, which is which is kind of fascinating, isn't it? You know, you, you think that the opposite would be true, but it, it's not really, is it? It's interesting. Yeah. And you do get some some occasions where you get activist investors who come in and they spot those opportunities yeah. to be able to do things. But yeah. fa- the reason that we know them all is they're fairly few and far yes. between. Right. Yeah. Mm. Um, they're not. They're not common. Um, and this aligns. With, this, well, this aligns kind of with Jeff. One of Jeff's other points is about the importance of evidence-based management, but how that's bloody sorry, very hard, very very hard to have evidence-based management because managers don't have the evidence. So I guess that extends to hire, hiring. Is there a sufficient evidence on past past behaviour? Yeah, and his wish that we all did more evidence-based policy making, but obviously there is a you know, whose evidence becomes quite contested at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And also, there's obviously there's always the politics and the value systems of that political yeah. party. And also, you know, if if there is um as you were getting at before, Ali, you know, a much greater propensity to um for people to receive payoffs at the end of a period of employment or or indeed to sign um you know, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements that go with them. Perhaps some of that evidence, you know, I'm sure quite often never even sees the light of day. So, no, yeah, it's and it's quite... interesting. I mean, it's in a very different context, isn't it, around sexual assault? But you know, the the campaign on both sides of the Atlantic actually to get rid of NDAs. Yeah, you know, yeah, um, and that they can't be used, and how that might shake up business and and there's a lot of journalists I know uh, we were all at an event actually with Ros Warren uh with sorry Rod Unwin from the Sunday Times the other day um who was really pushing that uh as a you know it will be one of the great power levelers um and will keep holding people much more accountable mm. you know which will be will be interesting and I probably should have said the brilliant brilliant Ros Unwin given one of the other things that uh, Jeff really left us with at the end was that to bring about change and to get people to change their mind it's best to flatter them and to tell them that they're brilliant you know and <laughs> 
to say, oh, you're so brilliant. You just could have been slightly more brilliant or, oh, that somebody, it was someone else's fault that you made this mistake, not your own fault. Um, and I, I think he's absolutely right, actually, completely right. It's much easier to change your, change your mind when you can blame somebody else for having got things wrong. Absolutely. Just doesn't, I guess in the end that the outcomes from, uh, you don't get good decisions, do you? <laughs> Just by, by flattering, but yeah, it is a sure way, surefire way to, uh, I think promotion. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's uh, certainly, uh, I think most people have seen that manifest in their, their lives over a, a period of time. But, uh, you know, to me as someone who's, who's taken Jeff's class, what struck me is, is very surprising is he's almost the opposite of that when you interact with him and you could sort of see him in that answer to you, Alex, I could almost see like a racehorse girding its loins to respond when you were like, oh, should I be an authentic? And, and Jeff didn't really flatter you with his answer. He just told you he disagreed with you. And, uh, you know, like he didn't need to do that to try and help change our minds or to challenge us. And how, how do you end up in that position beyond having 30 years worth of incredible academic research um, behind you, you know, it feels like there can be a strength in being the one that stands out, but you need to be really careful in how to do it. And you have to be very resilient, I think, and quite robust, actually, in your yeah. views and your sense of self, if you're going to do that, because, you know, we've touched on this before, but, you know, if you are in a position where you have a very strongly held view. It's not the most popular one. It's not going to be flattering to anybody if you raise it, but you do think it's vital to speak that truth to power in some way. There is a risk. There is a risk there. And I suspect, you know, for somebody like Jeff, uh, you know, obviously he has a huge weight of, you know, research and and, and uh, experience behind him. But but if you don't, I think it's probably just you, you're going to be leaning back into that um, that sense that it's a, a kind of moral thing that has to be done or must be done because it, it you know it's genuinely important and and that, that's a sort of challenge again, isn't it? You know, to your own to your own resilience and your own standing. I totally agree, and I suppose I should probably bring this analysis to a close um, with two obviously flattering my excellent and brilliant co-hosts here. And of course, thanking um, Jeff for coming on the show. Um, uh, as we said, this episode of Change My Mind is brought to you by our sponsors, Stanford University's MSX program. The MSX program offers experienced leaders a one-year full-time accelerated master's degree at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Students known as Sloan Fellows come from all over the world it's rigorous, immersive, inspiring, and transforms careers. I should know because in 2017, I was lucky enough to be one of them. For more information, visit gsb.stanford.edu slash msx. I'd love to thank Jeff for coming on the show, Caroline Crampton, who is our wonderful producer that makes us sound better every week, Open Democracy, who share our thoughts and those of our guests with their many, many listeners, and Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is licensed under Creative Commons and is our music. Thank you. Thank you.